the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Well, hello, my name's Richard Moore. I'm with Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. And in his uh, Movistar casket, uh, Daniel Freib. Hello, chaps. Hello, and uh, yeah, we well, there's racing, fellas. Um, and I've got in my notes here, Quick Step are having a shocker this season uh, so far, but I've had to revise that a bit. We'll get onto that in a moment. But I feel kind of overwhelmed by by the racing. All of a sudden, um, it's 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 upon us. And there are three races today, three races to watch. All very unfamiliar looking, isn't it? Um, just with a few as a sprinkling smattering of new jerseys. It occurred to me, chaps, I don't know about you, but a few years ago um, in the football world, Richard, um, try not Familiar to. with that world, yes. Yeah, yeah, you are vaguely familiar with it. UEFA and FIFA issued some kind of mandate or some kind of directive for national teams to start wearing block colours, to colour blocking shorts and jerseys. And this led to absolute atrocities, sacrilegious um, kit changes like France having blue shorts instead of white, Italy having blue shorts instead of white. Um, but it did occur to me, there is, an, there is a real proliferation of white shoulders in the World Tour this year. Too many kits with white shoulders. And actually colour blocking in professional cycling, you would lose some of the, I suppose, the, the sort of distinctive kind of sponsors' touches and design sort of flourishes. But it would be quite helpful. I'm sure it would be very helpful for commentators, wouldn't it, to have a bit more colour blocking? Colour blocking, uh, when you're talking about that with related football kits, Daniel, I think back to Scotland's famous uh, stripe across the shorts, you may recall from the, the 80s. I had that kit. Unusual. Did you? Wow. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I always said the test of, of new kit, and I don't want to talk about new kit forever because that, that turns some people off, but the test of new kit is what it looks like on the road. Early impressions... Quick step, Luke. I like it more than I thought I would. Difficult and to pick And grow like the shorts. I like the shorts. The, 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 I think the quick step one is quite difficult to pick out. There will be, I think, well, the, the people who this issue affects most of all um, is the director sportives. I remember back um, uh, back in the day at Mape, there were a couple of kit changes that the... In fact, there was a Mape kit. 2001 kit was very like the Quick Step kit this year. And it went down very badly with the director sportives. They could not pick the riders out because it was very similar to Bonesto at the time, if you remember. I think Lionel's got that kit. <laughs> I think he's got most of it. He's got, he's got an impressive collection of Mape kit hidden away there in Bernie Towers. And, and just for you, Richard, I've got the 1980s Z Peugeot jersey on the wall. Oh. Oh, there with yeah. the cartoon the one I don't like it. Uh, thank you an absolute classic very considerate. before we move on because we're not going to talk about kit all day but uh, now you've seen it on the bike in a race what are you going to revise your opinion of the coffee disc jersey I'm I'm keeping my opinion the same I, I like it a lot I think it looks great Guillaume Martin when he went up the road on Sunday in the Marseille um, Grand Prix looked fantastic very odd though that there's no lettering down the side of the jersey I it think from there, from, from the like side it. and the back, I think it looks good. But uh, when they're in the bunch and you you can't see the lower red portion, it just looks like a a plain white jersey, which is which is absolutely fine. But uh, as a a friend of mine put it, uh, not keen on the sort of strapless cocktail dress style design. It does look like sort of bare shoulders. 
Maybe. Mm. I liked it so much that I rushed to decathlon and bought a load of ski gear, which I'm not now <laughs> going to be able to use. That's another story. It's another one, though, with white shoulders, isn't it? I haven't seen this many white shoulders since I last <laughs> attended a head and shoulders clinical trial. Or since since Richard and I went on a, a very hot, sunny package holiday <laughs> in Spain. Since we took our tops shoulders. off during a <laughs> podcast recording, which was never. Uh, Daniel. Yes. Uh, what's coming up well, Richard, in today's, this week's episode? Well, you mentioned there has been a, a fair amount of racing and there will be a lot of racing in the coming weeks. We know that February in particular is a very busy month. We're going to be talking about those races, what we've seen so far, any hot takes. Um, we'll be talking about hip-hop music. Um, we'll be talking <laughs> about... We'll be talking about ketones. And oh, well, yeah. a few... A few, some might say, worrying noises that have come out of mainly out of the French media this week about trends in the peloton, ketones, and um, other substances that may or not be used currently in the peloton. And we've got a, a bit of a, a a deep dive provided by mainly by Lionel um, into an issue that not many people, not many fans, are talking about. But I think a lot of teams will be talking about, certainly when we get to the end of the summer, a nice promotion and relegation from the World Tour. And we also have the news roundup, of course. So um, I think we'll be talking about the racing in the next part. But um, I know you've got a few headlines for us, Lionel. Yeah, well, we'll talk about the road racing, won't we? There was also the World Cyclocross Championships in Arkansas in the US. And, well, there's a new Superman. Tom Pidcock sailed over the line in a Superman pose. Is this going to usurp the original Superman, Miguel Angel Lopez? I don't know. Is this a, a challenge? Daniel, you don't look, you look sceptical. Slightly nonplussed. <laughs> well, Tom Pidcock uh, won very convincingly ahead of Lars van der Haar of the Netherlands. Uh, van der Haar pipped. Ellie Isabit to the silver medal. There were seven Belgians in the top 11, but it really was the Pidcock show in the men's elite race. Um, looked like he was toying with them, really. Chose his moment uh, on lap five of nine, I think it was. Stretch clear, stretch further clear, and uh, yeah, had time to unclip and balance himself. Superman fly, style. Fly across the line. To fly well, across the line. I was going to say, technically, that, that position must be illegal. Um, under UCI regulations, Good but he wasn't disqualified. No. But um, it can't, that can't be a, a legal position given um, the well, you, you know, your bottom must have been on the saddle um, for descending, and you're not allowed to sit on the top tube. So how on earth are you allowed to place your stomach on the saddle? I mean, as the cycling podcast resident Killjoy, even I wouldn't disqualify a rider for doing that, you know, when 30 <laughs> seconds clear in a cyclocross world title. But Tom Pidcock, the Olympic mountain bike champion, of course, now the world cyclocross champion, looking ahead to his road season, going to debut on the road at the in Algarve in Portugal, isn't he? And then it's a full-on classic campaign and then the Giro d'Italia for Pidcock. So really does feel like the sky is the limit for Superman. Uh, um, as long as he doesn't have to, I don't know, change in a phone box. Is that what Superman did? Did he? Yes. Yeah, did he? Right. Uh, the women's race was won for the eighth time by Mariana Voss, a real Dutch battle with her compatriot Lucinda Brand. Uh, but Voss got the better of her at the finish. Uh, Zoe Baxter won the junior women's title for Great Britain. Um, did you see the cyclocross? I mean, you asked me last week what the course was like, Daniel, and it, and it completely slipped my mind that this is uh, the course that has hosted World Cups uh, as recently as, I think it was 
September or October. Purpose-built course, very wide, extremely fast. I mean, Pidcock's performance was very impressive, but it was kind of like a, a criterion race with, uh, you know, some a, a set of stairs, really. I mean, uh, quite an impressive-looking set of stairs, it has to be said. Um, but it was a, almost a road race, really, a, a crit-style city centre road race. Definitely one for the cyclists among them, wasn't it? Um, rather than the, the runners or the, the, the mud sloggers. Um, I, I quite enjoyed it because I quite enjoy watching bike racing. Um, so I quite enjoyed it. Uh, um, but it probably maybe wasn't one for the, the purists who like uh, a few more challenges. I mean, remember last year across the beach and um, that the spectacle that, that provided was was pretty spectacular. But this was different. Um, I did quite enjoy watching the races. So Mar- Marina Voss, I mean, amazing um, for her uh, so long after her last world title to win that eighth one. Uh, quite remarkable. At least, chaps, I mean, my, my barometer for cyclocross races and courses is how sort of dignified it was. And uh, there was no sort of undignified fumbling around in sort of sand or mud. I mean, most of the most of the chaps and, um, and the women were elected able to stay on their bike weren't they <laughs> yeah i mean very dignified yeah very some very dignified uh running up the up the well, steps um with their bikes on their shoulders it was all very graceful actually yeah i will i will defer in terms of how this course ranked i will defer to someone who knows much more about cyclocross than me and one of our belgian colleagues give give a mirror and i spoke to him i think he's um, does he work as the press officer for the Belgian national team in cyclocross as well? He does in the, in, on the road, but I spoke to him on Friday and he said it was magnificent, the course. And um, Guy very much, well, he knows his onions as far as cyclocross is concerned. Of course, as impressive as Pidcock was, the absence of Matthew van der Poel and Wout van Aert was uh, pretty keenly felt, I think. Given this type of course, it would have been incredible watching the three of them go head to head. Of course, uh, van der Poel is not fit, to race at the moment but has apparently got back on his bike and and been for a sort of 25k ride so the uh the the, the baby steps back to competition for van der poel um, I, can i say one other thing on cyclocross i had lunch on sunday with the american uh, under 13 i think it's under 13 a national cyclocross champion a young chap called lucas young in brussels where he lives um, he travelled back to Chicago end of last year and won the won the under thirteen championship. So look out for him in the future, Lucas Young. Wow, lining up the young audio diarists, even younger Richard now, by the sounds of it. What else? Well, more unfortunate news from Colombia because just three days after Egan Bernal's crash, uh, his teammate Brandon Rivera also crashed in training and is been in hospital with a fractured and dislocated elbow um, so a double dose of bad luck for Ineos in Colombia we're going to talk about all of the racing in Europe and also the Middle East in the first part but just one note from the Santos Festival of Cycling which you're kind of standing in for the Tour Down Under at the moment which is unable to be held as a world tour event because of the uh, ongoing coronavirus complications but uh, Richie Port made his last competitive appearance on Willunga Hill he's pretty much owned that hill in the Tour Down Under in recent years and it was James Whelan who was riding for EF last season who won the race uh, he's, he is without a world tour contract this year 
And well, this morning, Richard and I attended, if you can attend a, a virtual press conference, we attended the virtual press conference for the World Championships 2023, which uh, I'm going to dub the Super Worlds because it's going to be held in Scotland and Glasgow, or well, centering on Glasgow. But as we heard this morning, there will be events across Scotland, 13 disciplines, road track, mountain biking, BMX, paracycling, and a grand fondo for amateurs among them. And it will be from the 3rd to the 13th of August 2023. And uh, there was quite a lot of talk about um, making this the most sustainable cycling event ever. Um, you promoting cycling as a mode of transport as well as celebrating the sport across a number of different disciplines. I'm, I was sceptical when this was announced, but I think this Super Worlds concept every four years, uh, it sounds really good from the few details that we've got so far. Uh, one of the questions was about whether there will be an under-23 women's road race. Uh, there was a, a women's under-23 cyclocross um, title at the weekend. Uh, David Lepartion said that uh, the aim is to have an under-23 title starting in, uh, most likely in Glasgow in 2023. Initially, it'll be combined with the elite women's race, but with the goal of having standalone events in a few years' time. So that uh, sounds like it's moving in the right direction. And one of the lines that came out of it was that the organisers want to ensure that Scotland is thought of as a bucket list destination for cyclists and well with great timing i'm able to confirm that my tour de cost which i had to cancel last year of course is back on the agenda and we will go and ride around scotland simon gill and i a bit later on this year and release that series probably towards the end of the year brilliant um just a brief note on that i mean it's very much david lapartion's project isn't it this super worlds and he explained that in this press conference how how he'd explained his vision to Paul Bush of Events Scotland, who tried many years ago to bring the Tour de France to Scotland um, and lost out to Yorkshire. So he's finally brought a big major event uh, to Scotland, had the European Championships a few years ago as well, of course. But the main the main point of interest with it, apart from the fact that it's in Scotland, of course, is that the timing. I mean, it kind of harks back to the old World Championships, which did used to be in August and did use to combine track and road um, and you know what we saw then was you know I'm thinking like you know, likes of 89 in particular uh, Greg LeMond going taking his Tour de France form to the World Championships and, and going again up against Laurent Fignon again and you know it, it does it does open up that possibility we saw it of course in 2020 as well um, the World Championships following just after the Tour de France, and and it worked really well then, and I think it'll work really well uh, next year. I, I mean, I I prefer the World Championships to be at that sort of time than where they are at the moment. Now onto the real controversy of the week: the the yin and yang, the good and bad of social media. I'll leave you two to decide which is which. But first up, uh, Primoz Roglic, who I expect is preparing for the Winter Olympics himself, isn't he? Uh, prepared a video for Jumbo Visma's speed skaters who are off to China for the Winter Olympics. Our colleagues of the speed skating team they are going for the Olympic Games to the Beijing. So let's give them some tips. Tip number one. The first tip is from my side. Don't crash. <laughs> tip two. Be careful. 
it can be very slippery after the dwell pause. And then what can we say about the Astana rap? My word. C'è Astana Kazakhstan team. This is Astana Kazakhstan team. Yeah. Looking fresh. We are ready to win. We are rolling pedals for the gold medals. Our job is to win. Astana is my team. We are riding to win and it will be done. Astana is my team from Kazakhstan. We are rolling pedals for the gold medals. Our job is to win. Daniel, as the youngest hippest of us, um, and I, I mean, that's relative. That is extremely relative. <laughs> right. <Steady. laughs> what did you make of the rap? I mean, um, well, I've been corresponding with a member of the Astana team today. And shall I say, without revealing his identity, this is someone who continues Virginia, the state of Virginia's long heritage of producing um, illustrious MCs after Missy Elliott, um, Pharrell Williams, Timberland. Well, I will reveal his identity. Next came Joe Dombrowski, and Joe and I, Joe and I agreed that. Well, there's another famous rapper who's not from Virginia. Nas in 2006 released an album called Hip Hop Is Dead. He was about 16 years too early because I think hip hop is definitely dead after the Astana rap. But I was really, I was really keen to find out about the genesis of this, well, what is now a, a rich tradition with the Astana team, because this is their second um, their second um, attempt, isn't it? Yeah, but I think the first one was more tongue-in-cheek, wasn't it? This one felt a bit more, a bit more it, it earnest. So there were, yeah, there were a few riders in there who were taking this very, very seriously. I also um, corresponded with Joe Dombrowski. I sent him my, my congratulations um, on a fine piece of work, especially his contribution uh, lying by a swimming pool stroking his bike. He said he hadn't actually watched it yet. I think he's probably saving it to, to sit around with the family and really enjoy it properly. Um, you know, you don't want to waste a pleasure like that watching it on your own on a, a dodgy internet stream. So I'm sure the Dombrowski family will sit down together and and enjoy that i mean I, I i don't cope well with kind of uh this sort of thing my cheeks were going hot and it was absolutely nothing to do with me i did think perhaps you know to combat the rising energy prices uh, something that has um you know really affected kazakhstan actually in recent months maybe we could have a sort of a global astana rap watch where we all sit down and watch it at the same time and and the heat generated from our collective glowing cheeks of embarrassment um, would, I think that uh, could be very dangerous. Could, could power homes, couldn't it? At uh, last, the risk, before... uh, the risk just, just quickly, uh, the risk of throwing another football reference. Of course, there was um, the Anfield rap years ago, the Liverpool football team um, brought out uh, the Anfield rap, which was very much lampooned at the time, but has since become um, a bit of a cult classic. Could that be, you the, think fate, this could be the, the same? fate that awaits uh, the Astana 2022 outing? I think surely Vincenzo, Vincenzo Nibli. I mean, retirement must have been a better option than that. <laughs> surely, come on. I, I think that cycling needs to take a different cultural direction next year. I'm looking forward to the Trek Segafredo Opera. And lastly, for the news roundup, we get very excited when cycling features in the mainstream media, don't we? Especially on something as illustrious as Mastermind, the BBC quiz show. Uh, quiz show? I guess it is a quiz show, isn't it? But uh, one of the contestants, Martin McCann, his specialist subject was La Vuelta a España.
Which Italian who has won four Grand Tours in total, including the Vuelta in 2010, was disqualified from the 2015 race after he was seen to hold on to his team car for five seconds. Vincenzo Nibli? Yes, Vincenzo Nibli. Well, I don't know how you chaps would have got on. I found the question pretty difficult, but got nine out of 12, honestly. Honestly. Um, but uh, we should... I found try- the questions pretty difficult. We got t- nine out of 12. <laughs> well, three wrong. It's pretty good. Three I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, mm. they, they were difficult, the three that I didn't know. <laughs> Old Marty, though, he got, he got 12 out of 12. I think he did, yeah. And if Martin is a listener... Get in touch with us at cycling underscore podcast or drop us a line, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. We would uh, love to have a chat. We'd love to ask you about well, the Vuelta. Chaps, I don't think he did. I don't think he did get 12 out of 12. Um, oh. when, when we were talking earlier, chaps, I did. I looked it up and I, I, he got at least one or two wrong. I think he got um, Jose Manuel Fuentes' nickname wrong. And there was possibly another one that he got wrong. Anyway, a good effort nonetheless. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thanks very much indeed to Super Sapiens, our title sponsor. Now, using Super Sapiens is a great way of learning about fueling and the effect of eating and drinking on your blood sugar levels. If you head over to their YouTube channel, they've launched a series, Super Sapiens Recipes. Lots of tips about what and also when to eat. Hosted by Todd Furneaux, one of Super Sapiens co-founders, this week's is all about priming. Um, He also talks in that episode about a survey they've done of Super Sapiens users that found that on using the devices, 79% of users made changes to their nutritional habits and 89% changed how they eat before, during and after exercise. I can relate to this having used Super Sapiens myself. Um, Todd explains uh, about how the pre-exercise meal, um, the timing is as important as what you're eating and there are some tips about how to experiment with that to find what's best for you. So head over to super sapiens youtube channel to check out those videos and if you want to know more about super sapiens go to supersapiens.com well chaps as i said at the start the the racing is is almost overwhelming it's gone from famine to feast in the space of about um a day or so it feels it feels like the racing gets off to a kind of gentle start in majorca with these races uh, feel almost like warm-up races which they are and then we're off to Saudi Arabia, Saudi tour. Um, we've seen the first couple of stages. Well, we've seen one stage. We didn't see the, the first stage because there were no TV pictures until the end. Um, it feels, however, that down in Valenciana, uh, which began today, uh, we've probably seen the most significant action so far, I think, with Remco Evenepoel uh, putting in a very fine performance to win stage one on his own, a kind of trademark Evenepoel attack after a lot of work by by other teams um, and you know it forced me to score out the, the the remark that I'd made that it's very unusual to have so many days racing um, not that many but uh, but but no wins for quick step and he's put that right and he looked very good and it did make me think back a year um, to uh, even the poll 12 months ago when there were all these questions about his form and fitness and you remember 
at the training camp, he sort of announced that he was delaying the start to the season. And we didn't see him race, of course, until the Giro in May. So um, given that, um, it's, it's encouraging for him and for his supporters to see him in such in such good form so early in the season against a, a pretty strong field. Bahrain uh, were, were, were looking good for a while in the stage. Very odd to see Luis Leon Sanchez in their colours, but... Yeah, very impressive performance from Remco Evenepoel. It's going to be a really interesting year just in terms of us finding out a bit more. It sounds strange, you know, when he's had 23 pro wins already. I think today was his 23rd. But finding a bit more about what kind of rider he is because I I still feel as though we don't really have a a template um, that we can sort of apply to Remco Evenepoel. I mean, today's win on an uphill finish in in just outside Valencia, the stage finished um reminded me a lot of a win he took a couple of years ago at the Vuelta Burgos on the 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 Picon Blanco stage a sort of counter-attack on a on a relatively difficult uphill finish but as far as his credentials on harder longer climbs um go we we still have a few questions don't we and I think that it's going to be really interesting to see how he goes on Friday, I think is the big stage. It's, there's a summit finish, finishing above. I don't know if you remember at the Vuelta last last year, chaps. The stage to Balcon de Alicante, won by Michael Stora. And Friday stage finishes um, on well in the, in the same mountain range, just above where that was, Balcon de Alicante, and it's quite a, a long climb. And um, judging by today's stage um alexander vlasov riding for the first time for bora is well he's on on good form already and there'll be a few riders emrick mass as well look pretty sprightly already on that climb and valverde showed last week that he was pretty al dente already so um yeah there are a few riders who who are going to uh, no doubt make it pretty tough for remco um later this week you mentioned Friday's stage, Daniel. That and today's stage were the ones that Remco Evenepoel singled out as being the ones that would decide the GC in Valenciana. And in fact, Friday's stage has got a gravel section and he was asked in a little press uh, conference that was held yesterday on the eve of the race uh, what he knew about that finish. And uh, this is what he said. Uh, the first one I... Actually, never wrote it, so it's going to be quite a surprise. But um, nowadays, we have quite a lot of information with uh, some applications, and uh, all the sport directors they know very well what to expect. I think the first stage will be quite an explosive finish, but still, it's quite steep, so it will be hard. And then the third stage, we actually did a reckon, but we actually never saw the good finish. So that's already nice to go into that race that we saw the top of the mountain but not the 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 good side but i think uh for sure the third stage will be uh an explosion in the bunch and there will be some nice time splits in between the gc riders why you did not see the finish over there because we didn't believe we could we were going to turn into such a bad gravel road with some really big rocks so we thought it was a mistake in the gpx but uh doesn't look like it's a mistake i think we'll uh have a nice mountain bike stage. And you are looking forward to uh, this uh, gravel finish? Why not? It's something special always. Uh, I think it's different uh, when it's in the end of the race and uh, especially it's 3K and quite steep. So uh, yeah, it's always always something special and uh, some, uh, yeah, how to say, spectacular 
finishes on in Spain. So uh, I think they want to even make it more spectacular. Our Belgian colleague Hugo Kordovic there with the questions about that finish and the gravel section and the fact that they didn't actually go and see it because uh, they couldn't believe that the race was going to tackle such a tricky looking gravel section. So that will certainly make an interesting spectacle for TV viewers on Friday. What I found uh, quite ominous watching Evna Paul today was just being aware of the fact that yesterday he was saying that he wasn't necessarily going to be at his best today and that, that his first uh, big objective of the the early part of the spring was actually uh, Algarve in a couple of weeks time so uh, already hitting the ground running and, and looking good and he did also confirm that the Ardennes Classics are his uh, major focus of the spring he'll ride Brabant Pale, Flesh Wallone and Liège Baston Liège but uh, yeah, a, a fast start for Evan Paul. Uh, similar, I guess, to 2020 um, when he had a very good start to the season. I think he won Algarve, didn't he, that year before the lockdown? I think that was also a sort of counterattack in the last couple of kilometres of the on the uphill finish. It will also be interesting to see on Friday how he copes with that gravel section if it's as technical um, as he says, because of course. Uh, there were questions about his his bike handling and so on at the Giro last year on the Strada Bianca stage to Montalcino. So there there's still that question. I watched I watched with interest the descent. It wasn't technical at all today. It was on very wide kind of flowing roads. But I was just interested to see how he how he was on that because I think that's that's the question for Avon Pool. But who knows? Maybe in twenty years, Marty McCann was it our mastermind person will be asked you know who won the 2022 Vuelta Espana um and it could be Remco Evenepoel because that's his grand tour uh target this year which is which is going to be interesting too to see how he builds up towards that um what other things have caught your eye fellas I mean we've seen the sprinters in action in Saudi Arabia um Caleb Ewan winning stage one pretty convincingly and then on today's um much tougher finish I thought a very encouraging performance from Ewan um, to, you know, on a, on a you know, a, 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 a reasonable enough climb that a lot of the sprinters were, were dropped. He was still there and uh, it just kind of underlined his credentials for a race like Milan San Remo, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. I thought that was a really difficult finish. I mean, it was steep, but particularly the camera angle from behind it. it I was surprised that Ewan was up there um, looking so good. I know he can climb uh, very well for a, a sprinter, but um, when you think of the other riders that were up there, uh, I thought that was uh, slightly surprising. should say that it was Santiago Buitrago of uh, Bahrain, Victorious, who was victorious uh, in the stage. He got the better of Andrea Bagioli. Bagioli of Quickstep, of course, uh, had a terrible crash on the gravel section on stage one of the Saudi tour, hit some kind of obstacle in the middle of the well, desert road, really. It was kind of off-roading, uh, really, wasn't it? Um, and there's some debate about what those um, obstacles were. I think marking the edge of the, the um, road surface, I think, but he ploughed into one of those and, and went over the bar, so maybe suffering the effects um, of that crash, but but looked pretty good on the climb as well. Um, he got away with Daniel Oss, didn't he? And then Buitrago won uh, with a really impressive finish. But yeah, I thought Ewan 
looking very good. I know Milan San Remo is a, a long way off still and a long shot, I guess, because so much can happen and so many riders could be in contention. But we saw last year just how good he was. Um, you know, he probably showed too much, didn't he, as, as we've uh, discussed already this season. But uh, all looking pretty good for you. And, and an important win for Lotto Sudal in their bid to avoid relegation. Uh, we'll hear a bit more about how that all works in my rankings package at the end of this episode. Well, chaps, um, as far as Ewan is concerned, I mean, as discussed last week with Rolf Aldag on the on the pod, I mean, the the, the problem for him at Milan San Remo is not necessarily how well he will climb. And in fact, him climbing climbing well could almost play to his disadvantage. Um, you know, as you say, Lionel, last year he probably showed too much. Um, it's almost in a sprinter's interest, sort of again based on the conversation we had last week to. to to be getting dropped over the top of the pod, Joe, and just hanging on uh, in such a way that you know the other riders in the front group don't really pay too much attention um, to you. Uh, sprinters have have sort of done well in the past when when that's been the case when you know they've just got back on as the as the groups come down off the pod, Joe. But and also you know we discussed last week the importance of having teammates, um, so that may be the key factor for you and not you know how well he himself is riding. But um, otherwise, chaps, just a couple of other you know notes, dispatches. Again, I mean last year one of the themes really of the season was Bahrain victorious and how strong they were. They looked really good today in Valenciana, and it just struck me again the the sort of depth of their resources. I mean, they had a, a, a few personnel changes over the winter, lost a couple of riders, but, um, you know, they pay a bill bow. Jan Tratnik were looking good in Valencia today. Dylan, they were, I, I guess they were trying to set up um, Dylan Turns or Luis Leon Sanchez at one point. Even Mohoric was looking good at one point, but um, that didn't quite pay off. But again, very, very sort of deep resources as far as domestics are concerned. And Butrago as well, um, he's a, a young rider, 22 years old, but very punchy, someone who's um, certainly got a lot of promise. Talking of young riders, um, chaps, um, Evanipal won today in Valencia. And I was just intrigued to see how Juan Ayuso was going to get on this 19-year-old phenom who um, is riding for UAE and everyone's talked up as potentially the next sort of baby champion, the next Evanapol. And, you know, it did just cross my mind that we might see uh, a breakout performance from him because he, he talked about targeting this race. And it was certainly a, a really good ride from him, but, um, you know, not the sort of sensational barnstorming, you know, stage win that maybe some people suspected might might happen. He was 13th, um, so he finished just over a minute down from from uh, Evanipol. And just finally on, on the racing, Mads Pedersen won Etoile de Bessage stage one today. I watched that race. He also was very impressive on Sunday in Marseille. Didn't look so good in the sprint, messed that up a bit, um, but um, but looked very good on the climb where we saw Guillaume Martin attack. Tough, a tough course, actually. I, I've got a friend who lives down there, said it was very, um, you know, quite a hilly race, not a sprinter's race at all. And today it was a, a hilltop finish, quite a tough hilltop finish. Um, and Pedersen's looking very good on the on the climbs. I think he's looking quite lean, um, which is interesting. Worth uh, keeping an eye on him. If you if you want to spot him, he's got white shoulders. Yeah, the Grand Prix La Marseillaise. It was a good race, actually, wasn't it? You mentioned earlier, Richard uh, Guillaume Martin, how impressive he looked. I mean, he was well marked by UAE Team Emirates, wasn't he? Um, Diego Ulisi was up the road earlier. 
Martin chased him down and Alexis Brunel, a young French rider, was doing the sort of the policeman job for UAE. Um, Martin was eventually caught. UAE tried to set up the, the finish, but it was Amori Capio who won the sprint, coming off Pedersen's wheel, actually, wasn't it, in, in the finish? And uh, uh, that was after quite a lot of good work by his team, Arkea Samsic, including Connor Swift, who was doing quite a lot of work on the climb just to keep the brake in check and keep everything together. And another important win for Arkea Samsic because they're one of the teams vying for... Uh, a, a world tour place in this weird promotion relegation system. But uh, I thought that was a, a really uh, entertaining afternoon's racing. And, and it struck me that the Grand Prix La Marseillaise is only a couple of months older than Alejandro Valverde. So, um, you know, very young in race terms. Uh, first held in 1980, I think early February 1980. Valverde, of course, born in April 1980. But uh, there, there literally are some races that are just about the same age as Alejandro Valverde. Very established races. I was going to mention also uh, Mallorca because we only discussed one of the five races last week, didn't we? That was Brandon McNulty's 60-kilometre break. But uh, some of the other things that happened on the island of Mallorca were interesting. There was a first pro win for Biniam Gourmet, the uh, Intermarche rider, Eritrean rider, who was on the podium in the Under-23 World Championships uh, last season. Tim Wellens won his customary uh, Trofeo Mallorca race, didn't he? Valverde wasn't too happy with Wellen's sprint, but I didn't think there was too much wrong with that. And then Valverde got his own back the next day uh, by winning ahead of McNulty. And then Lotto Sudal, Arno Dali, the 19-year-old rider, getting his first pro win for them after stepping, stepping up from their under-23 team. But I actually wanted to introduce a season-long competition of our own. Um, I don't know what you chaps think of this. The, the, the cycling podcast performance of the season powered by Cassulet. And I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, basically, a sort of rolling uh, competition as the year goes by with uh, the most impressive performance. So basically, the, the first most impressive performance, Brandon McNulty's 60-kilometer break to win the Trofea Calvia in Mallorca for UAE Team Emirates last week. I mean, that's that's the performance to beat, basically. And so the, the question is, does Remco Evenepoel's stage win today top that in terms of, it, you know, being an impressive performance? I mean, it was... It was a, a decent ride, wasn't it? But I'm not sure it topples McNulty. The reason it's powered by Cassiolet is because to to be considered an all-round great performance, it has to have a bit of everything. So it has to be an impressive performance in a big race against, um, you know, strong opposition. So as the season goes on, we'll see that Brandon McNulty's uh, victory in a relatively small race probably won't stand. Not likely to be the most... If that's the mo- if, if we get to the end of the season, that remains the most... The Cassiolet... Then, then we've had a, a pretty exactly poor season. I can't believe Lionel has unilaterally invented this this gimmicky competition, and then in about ten minutes, he's going to spend twenty minutes talking about why the UCI World Rankings have never worked <laughs> and why no one cares. Can I? What about the? Can I? What can I ask about the cycling podcast moonshot challenge, Lionel? Uh, by all means. Well, tell me about the cycling podcast moonshot challenge, Lionel. Well, Richard, uh, in honour of Daniel's uh, mathematical um, mistake when you suggested that Pavel Sivakov had climbed 
uh, enough meters to reach the moon or whatever whatever the ridiculous uh, mistake was a listener called chris andrews emailed to say he's done a couple of calculations and he thinks that the cycling podcast strava club could reach the moon so the elevation needed to reach the moon is 384,400 kilometers which is 384,784,000 meters Uh, there are 3,704 members in our Strava club so that means that we would each need to do 103,384 meters of climbing over the course of the year so we need we need more members we need more members in our Strava club to achieve this Um, so I think that should be our target for the year can more people please join our Strava club club the cycling podcast and then when we made it a sort of manageable target because at the moment every member would have to ride 2,000 meters a week every week and, and, that's and just you don't really want not. you don't want too many more people living in the Watford environs it would be helpful if they lived in the Alps or the Pyrenees or the <laughs> Andes, Andes. <laughs> yes exactly if you live in if you live in Suffolk or Norfolk or the Netherlands or the Himalayas um, it's, it's it's weighted against you somewhat but still join in join the Strava club and uh, we'll see if, if we can Dutch, ride. We're not to the moon. interested. Once we know we can do it, we'll we'll set off. <laughs> Which is what they did when they went to the moon in 1969, wasn't it? Really. <laughs> Just to change gear slightly before we move on from the racing, I do think we should tackle the thorny issue of uh, the Saudi tour. Um, it's on the radar, isn't it? Because uh, Saudi Arabia hosted a Formula One race last year, and Lewis Hamilton spoke for the drivers or many of the drivers I think when he said do I feel comfortable here I wouldn't say I do but it's not my choice to be here the sport has taken the choice to be here and there are some questions to be asked about Saudi Arabia's human rights record Uh, of course there's a big uh, situation with the Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi who died in the Saudi consulate in Turkey in pretty uh, dubious circumstances and and that uh, is a situation that has not been resolved satisfactorily and of course Saudi Arabia is making big moves in the world of sport cycling is by no means the only um, sort of target for uh, I guess advancing Saudi Arabia's transition into tourism which I gather is is one of the goals the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund recently bought Newcastle United Football Club and uh, yeah, people involved with Newcastle United have not really talked too much about it uh, in terms of whether it's an appropriate organisation to own the club and I suppose people will uh, question cycling uh, ASO joining forces with uh, the, the Saudis to, to put on the race. It's not the first edition, of course. It was held in 2020 as well. And before that, there was a Saudi tour, which was um, you know much more of a sort of domestic affair. Um, but the, the allegation is that, that these events, and Saudi Arabia is not the only one, but they are part of a sort of sports washing um, effort. But I do think, Richard, you said something in our friend special um, in relation to our coverage of the Giro d'Italia when it started in Israel a few years ago, that if the idea is to sort of cover up and deflect, you know, perhaps it has the opposite um, effect because it does put some of these issues on the agenda. And I think if people want to find out a bit more about uh, Saudi Arabia's record, Human Rights Watch is a good place to start. And I guess finally, I'd say that cycling has had a sort of uneasy relationship with with several places in the past. I mean, I think about 
the Tour of Qatar, which was another ASO run event, wasn't it? It was a collaboration with ASO, the owners and organisers of the Tour de France. And I suppose when that race started in 2002, there weren't too many major sporting events taking place in Qatar. And over the years, Qatar has kind of been... Um, well, it's it's come to a point where it hosts other major events in tennis, golf, and of course will be hosting the Football World Cup. And I suppose cycling plays a role in this kind of sporting, political um, landscape, doesn't it? Um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm not uh, entirely sure what I make of uh, the Saudi Tour um, taking place, but certainly haven't seen any riders speaking out in the same way that Lewis Hamilton did but then would I expect them to I'm not sure yeah a lot of riders are in in a a difficult position by virtue of their employers because there are a lot of you know sponsors um involved in teams and and you know they're involved with the bike exchange team now as well as a as a as a part sponsor um I I did a I interviewed Amnesty, Amnesty International about this recently for a feature I was writing for Cyclist magazine um and they spoke a lot about Lewis Hamilton, you know, and, and um, the way that he uses his platform. And, and it's easy to sort of uh, maybe um, treat what he says uh, in, a, in a slightly dismissive way, um, that it's window dressing or whatever. But I'm not I don't think it is, actually. I think it, it's it's um, it's impressive when he talks about subjects, Black Lives Matter as well. Um, but this issue, too. The way that he does um and even though he is a, a champion and somebody who uh you know the sport needs as much as he needs the sport in a way um, and and other drivers and other riders are not in such a, mm. a position and it'd be more difficult for them um nevertheless it's 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 a brave thing to do it's something he doesn't have to do and speaking out in the way that he does does actually make a difference because it does it it, it acts even more powerfully to to draw attention to some of the issues. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, he wore the the rainbow helmet, didn't he, um, during the, the, the Formula One weekend in Saudi Arabia. But it's not easy for, um, you know, riders in a, in a sport like cycling. You know, cycling is a, a much smaller sport, isn't it? And so it it's, does basically the riders in Saudi Arabia this week don't have the same global power and platform that somebody like Lewis Hamilton has. Just to add to that, chaps, I didn't realise, I don't know if you did, um, the extent to which the French government was embedded with the Saudi kingdom, and in, in particular this development this that um, seems to be the centrepiece of the Saudi tour, the Al Alula um development which is this archaeological site which is being sort of converted into um well network museums and um cultural spaces and they actually sponsor the they're they're a co-sponsor of bike exchange bike exchange jaco team and yeah there's a lot of sort of input from there's even um an institut francais um sort of many people will be familiar with that in london that's being built in saudi arabia so there's a there's a high level of um collaboration between the french government and saudi arabia on on this and you know that's led to allegations i mean we're familiar with the the term sport washing but there's also allegations of art washing as well but as you say i mean cycling has always been of all sports that are i suppose vulnerable to well 
suggestions or the you know the reality of a kind of sport washing cycling is is always been foremost among them because um you know we've seen so many teams and and events fall by the wayside over the last few years i mean if if you wanted a cautionary tale then the, that of the quebecer um one Quebec and next hash as it ended up that's been documented recently on cycling tips um there was a, a good story about um the sort of cryptocurrency um company that came on board with them midway through last year and how it was all kind of smoke and mirrors but it really was the sort of the the typical tale that we've seen many times going back to you know le groupement in the 90s and manuela fundacion with that um well green edge organization more recently um you know a, very very often, um, cycling teams and, and races, race organisers have found themselves in a position of just desperately needing money and possibly not really doing their due diligence about where that money is coming from. Not saying that's the case with the Saudi tour, but um, unfortunately, um, compromises have very often um, un, unsavoury, unhelpful, unstable compromises have often been made. What I would just say, and this is not in mitigation at all, but I, I, there's another element to the Saudi tour that that's sort of separate to sports washing, if that's indeed what we call it. It's it's tourism. I mean, Saudi Arabia has this huge tourism uh, mission because they need they're going to need, uh, you know, to 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 um, maintain their wealth. They're going to need other sources of revenue than, uh, you know, oil um, and. They've got this campaign for 2030 to to turn Saudi Arabia into a major tourism destination, and I think the sports, uh, including cycling or especially cycling, are part of that goal as well. Um, so it's and not- rich. In addition to that, I know that in those countries, in Bahrain in particular, there are huge public health concerns about issues like um, obesity and and getting me people more mobile. And I know that you know the team. Well, the team at the Tour de France last year didn't we? Didn't we? We saw um, them broadcasting or um or highlighting issues to do with well diabetes i think it was um on the jersey there was a there was some kind of um campaign about diabetes so um that's also been certainly a message that's been leveraged or or conveyed transmitted by um these teams but whether it be bahrain uae and also the races taking place in in that part of the world uh, just lastly, because I'm kind of aware as well that uh, we can get into a situation where there's a sort of Eurocentric gatekeeping when it comes to who should and shouldn't host sporting events and cycling events. And I think it's important to kind of um, stress that this isn't about saying events should not be held here, there or wherever, but just to shine a light a little bit on um, issues, human rights issues particularly because i remember when the olympics was awarded to beijing in for 2008 people saying that this would put a spotlight on the country and it would you know force them to um you know improve in some aspects but you know here we are in 2021 and the plight of the uyghur muslims in china is not a happy one and so i think it's a it's not about saying that you know saudi arabia or qatar or china or wherever shouldn't host sporting events it's just about saying that you know there are uh, aspects to um the, the the regimes and 
and, and to the arrangements that, that do need to be looked at. But of course, it's a spectrum as well. Where, where do you draw the line? I mean, we've talked about the ethical um, uh, considerations of all manner of things relating to cycling. I mean, you know, you, you could make similar points about lots of companies and countries involved in the sport. Just a quick correction, corner before we end the segment. It's actually 2022, Lionel, not 2021. You might be oh, in 2021, crikey. but we're in 2022. So we are. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. You identify and stop paying for those subscriptions that you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. If, like me, you went into subscription overload during COVID, this could be the way to take back control by downloading the new free Truebill app, which helps you discover hidden unwanted subscriptions and cancel them with just one click. Never pay for an unwanted subscription again with Truebill. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. They've got over 2 million users already, and the app has helped those people save over $100 million together. They've been featured on the Wall Street Journal, Cheddar TV, CNBC, Forbes, The Washington Post, and many more. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start cancelling today at truebill.com slash cycling. Go right now, truebill.com slash cycling. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com slash cycling. Well, as Daniel mentioned at the start, um, we're going to hear now from Inigo Sanmian, the coach of Tare Pogacar, works with team uh, UAE Team Emirates. Um, and we heard from him a couple of weeks ago when we were looking ahead to the Grand Tours and, and uh, talking about Pogacar in particular. But during that interview, he said some interesting things in response to some of your questions, Daniel, about ketones in particular. Ketones are um, a legal product uh, that have been used openly by several teams over the last few years, but they're they're controversial for a number of reasons. Um, the MPCC banned them, for example, and uh, they are very, very expensive and unproven. Um, Jumbo Visma are one team who've openly used them. Other teams... Um, are committed to not using them, including Team DSM, for example. Um, and I don't think I knew whether um, T UAE Team Emirates and Pogacar use ketones um, or not. And that's the case with a number of teams. We're not sure whether they use them or not. Um, but why, Daniel, was this uh, a pertinent um, subject to be asking Sam Mian about at the moment? Well, Rich, the, the discussion about ketones has rumbled on over the past few years, in particular over the last few months. We had last year, I think it was at the World Championships, wasn't it, the UCI basically recommending that teams stop and riders stop using ketones and that they said they were going to commission a study into ketones. Um, of course, they are still legal under the WADA code. Then we had an interview from Roman Bardet, the SM rider, um, talking about how well, how frustrating it was that there was still ambiguity about they, whether they should or shouldn't be used. That was in Le Keep a few months ago. Then 
Last week, there was another interview by Jean-René Bernardo, the team manager of um, Direct Total... Total Direct Energy. Total Energy. <laughs> total Energy. No, to- just, just Total, total energy. energy. Just Total Energy. Um, in uh, West France, uh, he said that, well, it was a, it was an issue, that people were still taking them. He was happy that Pino Barde and people like that had, had come out against them. And he, he said they created suspicion and, um, and, and basically that he was not happy that people were still using them. Um, however, Rich, um, you, you mentioned UAE and Inigo Samian. Um, I was alerted to an interview, one of their, well, now ex-riders, um, Cristian Munoz, a Colombian rider, had given to a, a Spanish-speaking website a few weeks ago, in which he said the team had experimented with ketones and discontinued that experiment, decided to no longer use them. When I spoke to Inigo, who is the head of performance at UAE and uh, Tade Pogacar's coach, I was keen to verify that. Does the team use ketones or not? And ask him generally whether he thought they did pose either an ethical problem or indeed whether they were performance enhancing. What we know from from basic biochemistry and and metabolism is that uh, Ketones are a poor source of fuel overall uh, compared to other fuels that we have, like uh, carbohydrates, for example. You know, they're far behind carbohydrates in terms of uh, effectiveness. Even protein source can be more efficient than ketones because, uh, so, uh, you know, multiple amino acids uh, can be converted into glucose as well as also enter mitochondria directly for energy and be very well absorbed and utilized. So that's one one hand and on the other hand that you know we know we've been doing for 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 years that ketones compete with lactate for the same transporter so lactate producing the fast twitch muscle fibers has to leave the cells right through a door through a transporter and ketones are trying to use the same transporter to enter the cells it's kind of like they they, they counteract each other and, and, and this is one of the things that we've been known for years and this is why some, some, you know, many athletes, they feel like blocked, you know, when they have ketones in during competition. Because, yeah, that, that's, that's uh, what's happening. Lactate is trying to get out of the cell. Or while ketones are trying to get in, they compete for the same door. And that lactate doesn't get out very well as needed. And that's enhanced that blockage sensation. Then for recovery, some people are taking ketones now because, as you might know, right, it was it was the thing, you know, two years ago or three years ago, everybody would have ketones in the competition and now nobody nobody wants ketones in the competition because, you know, that it blocks them. We didn't have all the information, but uh, we, 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 we don't use them because they, as I said, you know, we know that we've been on three years of this, that they don't work uh, or, or they... I mean, they don't worry that they compete with lactate for the same transporter. So they're going to be detrimental for, for exercises at high intensity, especially in the competition. Another thing, and, and this is why, uh, um, uh, this is in my opinion, obviously I don't go door to door to teams, to writers to say, are you using ketones? But the word out there that we hear is that, yeah, the ketones are fading away uh, during competition and no teams are using them for this specific reason. But, you know, there are people who might be taking them, uh, you know, for recovery. Uh, and, uh, and that being said, you know, taking ketones for recovery, again, as I said earlier, 
it's a poor, uh, uh, a quite poor source of fuel. So you're going to have much better fuels than keto. There's no doubt about it. But uh, yeah, sure. My, you know, if, if you, you know, these guys, you know, are very efficient at using any kinds of uh, source of fuels, right? What I'm saying is like there's a huge misunderstanding and lack of knowledge, right, about what ketones are. Because yeah, you know, we have to look at this not necessarily from an I don't know from an ethical standpoint, uh, because you know, like I, I would put in the same uh, bucket ketones, amino acids, protein, carbohydrates, you know, third source of energy, right? But one thing is like, which one's better? If you give me ketones or proteins or carbohydrates, I'm always going to choose protein or carbohydrate. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much indeed to Science and Sport for their support of the Cycling Podcast. We are very grateful to them. And if you want 25% off your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, use the discount code SISCP25. Um, I know Science and Sport noticed, and probably a lot of people noticed, that Rafael Nadal, on his way to winning the Australian Open at the weekend, was... uh, was uh, downing the science and sport uh, gels, um, and uh, obviously they were very effective. Um, just related to that, a very good piece by uh, Matt Dickinson in the Times about Nadal and tennis, and, and where tennis players belong in the sort of pantheon of great athletes. And he makes a really good point that a tennis player, when he goes out for a match, or she goes out for a match, doesn't know how long the match is going to be, which presents particular challenges when it comes to fueling i would have thought um and yeah it was good to see nadal um knocking back the the science and sport gels they obviously work for him and it was a five-hour match i mean i think matt dickinson makes a very good argument that tennis players are certainly among the um well tennis at that level is among the hardest of sports out there i think um, in terms of intensity concentration and all, all the rest of it so i recommend his piece in the times if you want to have a read of that. Um, before the break, we heard from Inigo San Milan of uh, UE Team Emirates, Pogacar's coach. Very interesting stuff from him on ketones. I'm sure some people will have really got a lot from listening to that. Um, unrelated, but but kind of connected. Um, there was a bit more news this week about the, um, the case, the kind of curious case from the Tour de France last year when French police raided the Bahrain Victorious Hotel. And... Sometime later, there was an academic paper published in, in which it was alleged that the team had used tizanidine, which is a, a product that's not on the WADA band list, like ketones, um, but is used uh, for uh, patients suffering from a variety of, of ailments and disabilities um, as primarily a muscle relaxant. Um, and the thinking, if, if it's being used by cyclists, may be that... Um, it helps them with recovery and perhaps sleep as well. But there were some interesting comments from WADA. Their um, scientific head, Olivier Rabin, um, spoke a bit about this, saying that WADA were going to be looking into uh, tizanidine. Um, he said they were unclear on whether there were actually benefits. Um, there are a lot of potential side effects with it. But Rabin said that we must not overlook the fact that some people who have to help athletes perform at a higher level are subject to certain pressures to try to find solutions to bring about new things without there being any scientific rationality 
behind them and i thought that was a very interesting comment and and it, it ties in with some of what um inigo samian was saying there as well so interesting stuff a um, couple of pieces of business before we move on to your feature lionel on the world rankings and promotion and relegation um, we have advertised a job this week you will find the job ad on linkedin we're calling the job marketing and community manager it's a a varied role helping us across social media and lots of aspects of, of running the cycling podcast and um, it's about a 20 hour a week commitment it's a, a remote position so you can be anywhere in the world um if you're interested email us contact at the you will find more information about it on linkedin there will also be more information about it in this week's newsletter so if you're not already subscribed to the newsletter subscribe at the well, we should also say, you fancy sorry, it, Lionel. You fancy it, Daniel? Um, I'm, well, when we finish recording, <laughs> I'm going to quiz you guys about but, it because I didn't Daniel, know. Yeah, go on. I didn't know we were looking for a new manager. Thank you very much for your interest in the position, Daniel. We, 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 we're reluctant to inform you on this occasion you've been unsuccessful. Best of luck in your search for a suitable position. Um, we should also mention that this week we've released three new friends specials uh, and they are made by our guest editors friends of the podcast who submitted ideas last year and they've worked together in a kind of movie star trident fashion to make three new episodes about the cycling podcast one is the three of us talking about its origins one is uh, our producers talking about how it's all put together that is really fascinating and then one is about a very memorable day on the Tour de France and it's a great collection of episodes a trilogy works really well and Jack McKillop Nick Busca and Scott Emmons have done a fantastic job um, making those so thanks very much indeed to them and if you are a best friend of the podcast if you pay £100 a year to be a friend of the podcast you will be invited this year to submit an idea to be made into a friend special of which you will be guest editor but it's worked really well. So if you're not a friend of the podcast, do sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com. You mentioned the newsletter, Richard. It's the 1101 Cappuccino. Get get the branding right. I'm sorry. Our content. Not on brand. Our marketing and uh, community manager will be expected to, uh, you know, come up with zippy titles for things like that. Oh, it'd, be a, it'd be a sackable offence, I would have thought, to not, to not remember that. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> Let's hope so. Well, before we uh, just wrap up, let's hand over to me to talk about the world rankings in cycling. Who's the best rider in the world? It's a question road cycling has grappled with for decades. And over the years, the sports administrators have tried to create ranking systems to answer this almost unanswerable question. To the casual observer, surely the best rider in the world is the Tour de France champion. After all, that's the biggest and most prestigious race in the world. But what about the world champion? Try explaining to the uninitiated that the winner of the world championships is the best rider on the day, but is not necessarily the best rider in the world. How do you devise a system to compare Tadej Pogacar and Wout van Aert? Some of their skills overlap, but they're world class at slightly different things. Or maybe this illustrates the point better. Who's the better rider, Sam Bennett or George Bennett? Sam would win all the sprints, of course, but give them a 10km climb at the end of a race and George would win every time. So how can any point system rank them? And actually, do we need to know the answer? The merits or otherwise of the individual world rankings are the stuff of a heated pub debate. 
but when it comes to ranking the teams, there's potentially much more at stake this year. A couple of teams could lose their World Tour status at the end of this season based on the team ranking. Lotto, Sudal and Kofidis are looking most vulnerable at the moment, with Alpacin Fenix and Arkea Samsic potentially in line to replace them. I asked Matt White, sports director of Bike Exchange, Jayco, to explain the point scoring system and the implications for the teams at the bottom of the standings. Uh, yeah, so it's the it's the best 10 riders on your roster and um, it's their, their, their points per year. So you add up your best 10 riders and that's how you get, uh, that's how you get the ranking. And, and then the difference now compared to before is it is 10 riders and it's every race in the world, every UCI race in the world has a ranking. Whereas, whereas before, when there was a World Tour calendar, only World Tour events counted. But now every, every UCI race has, has a value. Unfortunately for the sport over the last few years, you know, there's been more teams pulling out than actually coming in uh, and there hasn't been a big demand, but I, I expect there'll be a, a bigger demand uh, next year. I've heard that Alpecin want to step up to the World Tour and also Total. Total. So there's two teams who want to come up and at the end of the day, uh, that's not going to fit. So there, there, is, there is a chance that two teams who are currently in the World Tour do get relegated to Conti Pro level. Well, I think I think the level two level, the second tier of our sport needs to be probably strengthened. But I think teams like Alpecin have shown that you know what is the difference of having a World Tour license or not? They've done, they did all three Grand Tours. They ride the classics that they want to ride, um, and they're doing it on a on a on a cheaper budget. I think the difference there is when you have a World Tour license, it's just a commitment to do all those extra races. If you feel that budget wise, in with staff, you need more staff, you need more riders, you need a more versatile crew of riders to be able to compete in. In those World Tour events in its entirety, whereas a Conti level team, a lot of those Conti teams, uh, you know, yeah, a small French or Italian Conti team is probably running a budget more than half uh, of those in the World Tour. Um, so it all depends also what the sponsor is looking for. I'm obviously heavily involved, and I couldn't tell you who finished third on the rankings. Um, it's it's something, and because also there's with the the UCI there's. There's a couple of different rankings now as well, which, again, are not publicised, I think, in, a, in an efficient way. And I honestly think not too many people pay too much attention to those rankings because they don't probably understand. They don't understand where those points are coming from. I asked Matt how much the rankings are on the team's radar and whether they'll be chasing points as the season reaches its conclusion. Look, I think it's, a, it's great for a team, the team who wins the rankings, to say that they're the world's number one ranked team. But, uh, you know, does it really... Does it really matter to a, a team sponsor to be ranked third or fifth or seventh or eighth? Um, and again, that all falls back onto the you know how you've sold your sponsorship deal with your with your um, with your partners and how how important that is to them. At the end of the day, if we're winning bike races, then we're getting points. So uh, we and I know some teams do encourage the the scabbing of points if you if you want to call it in a in a in a different way. Uh, you know, we we don't encourage our riders finishing twelfth or 14th, or 10th, or 9th. We're, we're looking to try to win bike races, but uh, some teams haven't got that ability, so they are really looking to scramble for points wherever they can get them. And I think what it, do, what it does also with, with having 10 riders being able to get points, it certainly favours the bigger budget teams because at the end of the day, when we were at our, our highest ranking was when they were only counting the top five points earners on the team. And we, we finished as high as, as fourth place. And that was also when it was only the World Tour. I, I don't agree that every point has a value. Uh, every team, every race has a value because at the end of the day, some of these smaller races, they're good exposure in, in a way for the sponsors, but 
you know, a, a small 2.1 race, some obscure race, shouldn't shouldn't have points or shouldn't count in the in our ranking. I, I just don't I don't agree with that that setup, and it just favours the bigger teams with the biggest big bigger debt can compete more, and they can also they 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 can pay more riders more qual- to have more quality riders, and it certainly doesn't favour the the smaller teams. So I think the where the, the old system worked fine for me. I think a world tour ranking. If at the end of the day. The World Tour is our premium level racing, and that that's the ranking that should be that's the ranking that should be highlighted. I think winning winning ten French Cup races or winning small races in Italy or Spain or or wherever that may be, yeah, it's great it's great to win those races. But does that really really significant really show the depth of a team? Right, whereas you know I think we've lost our way a little bit in selling the narrative of, of the sport. It's it's a complicated sport enough that to try to explain to everyone in uh, who's following the sport what races what races count and what races don't count it should be i think keep it simple the world tour is the world tour and that's the that's our uh, that's our first division of competition and uh, the people who have success in the world tour is uh, is, is what matters look I, I think at the end of the day the the best teams will get through but uh, i think this is the probably the first year in a long time where where the ranking is actually going to matter with uh, keeping your license because in the past I said we've had teams pulling out of uh, with lack of sponsorship, pulling out of the World Tour, and we have had people putting their hand up to get in. Whereas I think uh, for 2023, you're looking at probably UNOX is probably going to put their hand up, Alps in, and Total. So there's three teams that want to come into the World Tour, and that's not going to work with uh, the current system of uh, allocation of spots. Matt mentioned Alps in Phoenix there. They're one of the second tier teams currently in line to take a World Tour place. Until now, they've operated quite happily outside the top division. But would there be an advantage to being in the World Tour now that promotion is a possibility? Richard spoke to Christoph Rudhuft of Alpecin Phoenix. The licenses were given away for uh, 21, 22 and 23. So for us, there was no no option uh, to step up. So we have to, to do like we did. And we, have, we, we, we were not interested in buying a license like uh, once we did so. We did not have, we did, we did not want to spend the money on on, on just the license. We chose uh, our own way, and we, on our sportive results, we got uh, the chance, rule-wise, to do what we did. And uh, I think nobody can blame us. They've been very successful because they've qualified for or been invited to most of the races that they could possibly want to do, and that's because they have one of the sport's biggest stars, Matthew Van der Poel, in their lineup. Rather than spend money on a UCI World Tour licence, they've chosen to score points on the road and earn a place that way. Although it should be remembered that any team in line for promotion at the end of this year would still have to meet the UCI World Tour criteria to take their place in the top division. Here's a potted history of cycling's world rankings. The De Grange Colombo Challenge ran from 1948 to 1958. It was a collaboration between the major newspaper groups that organised the biggest races and was named after Tour de France director Henri de Grange and his Giro d'Italia counterpart Emilio Colombo. Initially it was based on performances in the races organised by those newspapers but over the decade it also added the Tour de Suisse, Vuelta a España and other major events. I suppose the first official world number one in cycling history was Belgium's Breek Schotter, who won the De Grange Colombo Challenge in 1948. 
1959, it was replaced by the Super Prestige Trophy, sponsored for many years by the Perno Company, makers of an aniseed aperitif. It was a reliable indicator of the best riders in the world because Jacques Oncatil, Eddie Merckx, Bernardino and Sean Kelly were all multiple winners. The competition included all the major stage races and one-day events, plus the World Championships, and it only came to an end in 1988 because alcohol sponsorship of sporting events was banned in France. By that time, a computerised world ranking system, inspired by one that had been running in tennis for many years, had also come along. It started in 1984 and had a complicated scoring system with performances over a three-year period counting towards the standings. Sean Kelly topped the rankings for five straight years until 1989, when Laurent Fignon finally toppled him. The ranking lasted until 2004, and the final official UCI World No. 1 under that system was Damiano Cunigo. During this period, the World Cup came along in 1989, a series of 12 one-day events but no stage races, a little bit like the Formula 1 Grand Prix series. At its heart was a desire by the UCI to expand into new territories and races were included in Canada, Britain, Japan and later Germany. Initially sponsored by Perrier, the jersey was hideous to start with, a sort of orange and grey blend that looked like an oil slick in a puddle. The design for the World Cup leaders jersey was at least improved with a different take on the rainbow bands with vertical stripes instead and the World Cup lasted until 2004, and as you'd expect, it was dominated by the classic specialists. Maurizio Fondrias, Johan Museo and Michele Bartoli all won twice, and Paolo Bettini won the final three editions. The World Cup was replaced by the UCI Pro Tour, which included Grand Tours and stage races towards the standings, and the winners included Danilo De Luca, Alejandro Valverde, who won it twice, and Cadell Evans. But by 2009, the Pro Tour was in trouble because of a dispute between the Grand Tour organisers and the UCI. ASO and RCS, organisers of the Tour and Giro, of course, removed their events from the Pro Tour rankings, and so the UCI created a parallel ranking, which they called the UCI World Ranking, and they just included the Tour, Giro, and all of the prestigious classics run by those organisations in the standings. Alberto Contador won, and that's the competition that's basically evolved into the World Tour we know today. But running alongside the World Tour is a new World Ranking system started in 2016. Peter Sagan was the world number one for 54 weeks, and Primoz Roglic has been top of the standings for more time than anyone else, with 75 weeks as world number one across a number of spells. And of course, the current best cyclist in the world is Tadej Pogacar. Surely no one would dispute that. Richard also spoke to Richard Pluger, general manager of Jumbo Visma, who ended last season third in the team standings. It's the only objective way of measuring how good we are uh, on the one hand. Um, so it's really, like I said, it's, it's the only way we can see, okay, we are number one, number two, number three. So that's where we look at and, and that's what, uh, why we want to have as many points as we can get. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we also realize that, that the, the, the scale and the points are, it's a, uh, yeah, the system is, is, is not okay. The system is not good and, and the system uh, should be revised because now sometimes you get more points for a really small race, uh, whereas uh, the big races uh, leave you with less points while there's more competition, etc. 
and and yeah, uh, you've seen probably this uh, this article. I think it was with Flam Rouge or something online, where where there was a uh, an analysis of the points nowadays, and, and that's that's a very accurate analysis, and, and that shows how how broken <laughs> the ranking system is. So. Yeah, sometimes if you don't race that many small races, you 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 miss out on a lot of points for your world tour ranking. But yeah, if you focus like us on on the biggest races and not only us, but many teams, then you miss out sometimes on uh, on, on a lot of points. Uh, the world tour ranking in the at the end of the day is not really a, a, a good reflection of the best races, and that's something that that uh, yeah should be changed. Yeah, then then we should also go to more smaller races. Yeah, to gather a lot of points where where now uh, other teams are, are sometimes going and, and earn a lot of points. I mean, for example, uh, the the last Italian uh, races, um, there were a lot of races in Italy where where uh, UAE scored a lot of points, which is okay. Yeah? But 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 it's not. It's really strange if you score a lot of points in smaller races, and then we we could earn a lot of points in races in Holland maybe, uh, if we would have raised them. Um, but but that should not be the point of the ranking. The ranking should should be about all the best races in the world, all the world tour races. Uh, you should compare apples with apples and not apples with pears. As he said there, the rankings are measurable. Being able to tell sponsors you're the top ranked team in the world is something any marketing executive who's perhaps not as au fait with the way cycling works would understand. But as Pluger says, the system needs work. Pogacar earned 1,000 points for winning the Tour de France, which is a three-week race, as we all know. He earned another 1,000 points for winning Liège-Baston-Liège and Ile-Lombardia, two days of racing. Of course, it's not about trying to award points on some kind of hourly rate. The history and prestige of the events has to be the chief defining criteria when allocating points. But should 10th place in the Tour de France be more valuable than winning a week-long stage race like the early season Ruta del Sol? Should 10th place in a one-day race score any points at all? And, as Matt White said, should teams be able to hoover up points in smaller non-World Tour races to earn or preserve their place among the elite? Surely the sport is about the best against the best and ranking them accordingly. Let's give the final word to two riders on the world's official number one ranked team, Quickstep. This is Remco Evenepoel and Fabio Jakobsen talking about their approach to the rankings. I was doing the last race of the season last year in, in Italy and there was quite living because uh, I think it was a bit, bit of a battle with Ineos and we had there like three or four guys who were in the top 10 of the riders to take points. So, uh, I mean, it was a bit of a, I'm not going to say the most important thing or detail about the last races, but it was living. Uh, and every race we tried to, uh, to be with as much guys in the UCI points uh, and in the end turned out quite well i think we as a team we just want to win everything so that starts with winning races then winning gc then winning one day races and then towards the end of the season if you if you are in for the for the logo you know on the chest which says best uci world tour team then of course that is an extra motivation and like remco said we do not specifically write for that in the beginning of the season but towards the end of the year could also become a goal and uh Patrick is very happy with us and sometimes he gives us something extra than when we win. Daniel, which is your favourite of the various world ranking, World Cup sort of um, 
things over the iterations. years. Yeah, the, the the jersey or the the ranking, the pro tour, the world tour, the the super prestige. I mean, you know, it's been a right old hodgepodge as we've just heard. I think we all have a certain degree of nostalgia for the World Cup and the World Cup jersey, don't we? Um, that was probably the most coherent sort of gestalt that cycling's ever come up with in terms of you know races in a series and and sort of mimicking um what we see in other sports whether it's you know the world cup circuit in skiing i mean pretty much every sport in and i suppose this goes back to the point we were making earlier about you know sponsorship money and sort of going around with a begging bowl for sponsorship money but most professional sports calendars have become very sprawling and have sort of diluted themselves haven't they and this applies to golf tennis um you know with things like the fedex cup in golf um but the world cup was very neat wasn't it um you say that you say that but you know i think it depends when you got into it because for me the super prestige perno was the the thing that uh, had the most meaning to me but then that's because that was around and it seemed to mean something to the riders when i got into cycling when the world cup came along it felt to me uh, that it was something that was imposed rather than uh, sort of something that, 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 that developed with history and tradition and time. Um, but then that that's the that's that's kind of my problem rather than the competition's problem in a way. And we do tend to uh, put those things that have been around for a long time and are very established on a pedestal, don't we? Just because they've been around for a long time. Yeah, I mean, this is why the sport is crying out for the Cycling Podcast Performance of the Season Award, powered by Cassulet. Current leader, Brandon McNulty, UAE Team Emirates. Do get in touch on social media will or you, email Will us. you award the eventual winner with a tin of, of Cassulet? What a wonderful prize. Yeah. With a little bow around it. <laughs> <laughs> a yellow bow. Or what what colour bow would it be? Or what about a Stacey Snyder bowl? Stacey Snyder cassoulet bowl with a tin of cassoulet for the winner bowl. there we are a cassoulet bowls for the tour de france stacy if you're listening i hope you are um but that's a that's a cracking idea isn't it maybe i should be community and marketing manager i don't know <laughs> <laughs> do, do you know what we we didn't um, we didn't put in the news roundup, and we should have, that Davide Rebellin has supposedly, and this came to mind because I, I suspected for a moment that he might have ridden in the Super Pre, in the Perno Super Prestige, but that ceased in 1987, so it was, it was five years too early for him. But Davide Rebellin is going to, he says he's going to retire at the end of the season, by which time he'll be 52, if I'm not mistaken, or 51, no, 51. Um, I'm sceptical. I'm sceptical because I I posted to someone on Twitter the other day who asked me about it, a feature I wrote in 2015 in which I had, well, had been back through the archives and found articles with Rebellin saying in 2004, I think it was, he was going to ride a couple more seasons. Um, and here we are in 2022 and he's still riding. Well, he was right, wasn't he? Um, it'd be a shame if he threw the towel in already. I think he's got a few a few good years left in him yet. Um, well, we've covered the whole. We've talked about eleven year old cyclocross rider at the start of this episode. He's getting younger. He's thirteen. Fifty one year old one at the end. <laughs> no, no, he won the under thirteen oh. championship. He's he's eleven. I should I should have explained at the time that his his father is a a, a podcast listener. So Chris, hi to Chris if you're listening. Hope you are. Um, 
but listen, chaps, we should wrap up for, for this week, shouldn't we? Um, another bumper episode. Uh, we'll be back next week with more racing, more interviews. And uh, yeah, it's just coming thick and fast now. So lo- there'll be lots to talk about. In the meantime, thank you very much, Lionel. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Daniel. David A. Rebelin, born a month before Lance Armstrong. And on that note, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>